Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains some graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. There are references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's just before 10 in the morning, Tuesday the 4th of January 1938 at Newcastle Coroner's Court and the inquest into the murder of Dorothy May Everett is set to resume. Outside the court, a crowd of well-dressed women clamour for access to the ground floor public gallery, with about 20 of these ladies succeeding and taking prize seats. These women, like other members of the public present, have no idea of what to expect. Since the 28th of November last year, when Dot was found strangled and mutilated in the grounds of the elite Broughton School, where she worked as a kitchen maid, the police have had no apparent success in even identifying a prime suspect, let alone building a case and making an arrest. But legal moves are afoot that will surprise everyone. None more than the school's handyman and gardener, Len Roberts. He's due to appear as a witness, but the district coroner, Mr. A.G. Chiplin, orders he has to be present for the entire proceedings, and it'll be best for Len to have legal counsel. Len's solicitor, Mr. H.L. Wheeler, hurriedly asked for permission to represent his client in this startling new capacity. Now, as the inquest opens, the coroner explains, quote, The reason why I wish Roberts to remain in court is that certain statements of witnesses in this investigation point to this man Roberts as having been concerned in the death of the deceased girl. In a bolt from the blue, Hurled by the boys in blue, Len Roberts has gone from cooperative witness to chief suspect. He's not under arrest and he's not charged with anything. But if this inquest goes against him, 
he'll be committed to stand trial. If Len's convicted, he'll be sentenced to death. Would he really be executed? Or would his sentence be commuted like that of most convicted murderers? The best guide is recent history. The state executive is in a hanging mood. In 1936, New South Wales hanged two killers. Both went to the gallows for murdering men, not women, and for doing so in the commission of robberies, that is, without premeditation. One of the culprits was a 17-year-old boy, executed despite the jury's recommendation to mercy and widespread pleas that his life be spared. So, if things go badly for Len Roberts from today, and keep going badly, he can fully expect his life to end in a noose at Long Bay Jail. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part three of the five-part Forgotten Australian miniseries, The Vampire Murder. Parts four and five are coming to regular podcast platforms soon. But if you'd like to hear the whole story now, all five parts are available to show supporters as a thank you for helping me make this podcast. The Patreon link is in your show notes. And if you're a fan of the show, I'd love you to leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Len Roberts, described by the Newcastle Sun as having, quote, dark hair and clean-cut suntanned features, sat with his solicitor, Mr. Wheeler, behind the bar table as the inquest resumed. It wasn't lost on the ladies in the gallery that this chief suspect was a bit of a sort. But could such a handsome and well-presented gentleman really have committed such a monstrous crime? The coroner directed that the evidence that had been taken on the first day of the inquest back in mid-December be read out. So the court heard what Broughton's former headmaster, Mr. Futrell, and his wife, Edith, had said. The latter's account of how Len had supposedly acted on the morning Dot had been found would be of particular interest to the Crown. The inquest now continued with witness Sergeant V. Petit, who told of being first on the murder scene with Dr. Nixon. The sergeant had gone to the body, lifted the sheet, saw Dot and what had been done to her. The doctor had removed the corsets from her face, exposing the stockings knotted around her neck. He'd felt for a pulse and found none. Dr. Collier described arriving and examining the body in situ and further during a post-mortem at the morgue. He told of the terrible things that had happened to Dot just before and immediately after her death. While the bite on her chin had bled freely, those on her breasts had not. This had led the doctor to the belief that Dot had been dying or dead when these injuries had been inflicted. Dr. Collier testified that Dot's clothes had been ripped with enormous strength and the stockings around her neck had been knotted so tightly that had to be cut away. Dr. Collier testified that on the 7th of December at Newcastle Police Station, he'd examined Len Roberts. Quote, I put him to certain tests of his muscular strength. I found him quite a strong man. I got him to bite an apple, and then I tried to get him to bite one of the sergeants. This sergeant had been morgue keeper Sergeant Stephen Pender who'd gripped flesh on his chest into a bulge approximating a woman's breast. This bite test had to be incredibly awkward for Len Roberts, but he did it. What was the result? Dr. Collier told the court, nothing conclusive could be drawn from these tests. Why? asked Sergeant Magne, who was acting for the Crown. Dr. Collier replied, quote, He did not mark the sergeant for one thing. He did mark the apple. He had a false set of teeth in the upper jaw and no teeth in the lower jaw. Morgue keeper Sergeant Pender, 
who'd worked with Newcastle's dead for 16 years, did not testify about this strange experiment. But he did provide a dramatic moment when he laid out Dot's clothes on the bar table. They included half her pink brassiere. The remaining part was still missing. Dot's uncle, John Davis, told of seeing his niece on the Friday night before she died. She'd come to his place with her sister Bessie. Dot had been upset and wanted to speak to her sister Elsie, but Elsie wasn't there. John Davis told the court he'd been called by Elsie on Sunday morning. She'd told him Dot was missing. He'd told her to go and see Dot's boyfriend, Tom Donegan. Later that day, having learned the terrible news, John went to the morgue to identify Dot. He'd gone back there on Monday with Dot's grieving parents and with her boyfriend Tom. Lens counsel Mr Wheeler wanted to know if John heard a conversation at the morgue between Dot's mother and Tom Donegan. John said that he had. Tom had gone to shake Dot's mother's hand, but she'd refused saying, Why did you change the colour of your hair and why didn't you take the girl home? Despite Tom being cleared by the cops, Mrs Everett thought that his dyed hair was some sort of effort to disguise himself, and at least then, she simply couldn't forgive him for leaving Dot alone. Tom was next into the witness box. He told the court he'd known Dot for about three years and would have married her if his finances had been better. Tom described how they'd spent their last night together at the movies. Then he'd put her on the tram and gone home to his boarding house. Tom had talked to some of the other residents and gone to bed. Elsie had come to him the next morning, and when he'd heard Dot was missing, he'd had the idea she'd found the school gate locked and had tried to get home to Taree. Tom now told the court, quote, I realised afterwards that it would be impossible at that hour. It was clearly impossible, but it was also completely illogical. Tom explained how Dot had told him she'd been accosted inside the school gates one night, She'd fought off her attacker with her umbrella, but fallen on the steps and hurt her side. This had been about two weeks before she was murdered. Tom also said that Dot had told him that Len had asked her out. She'd said no. When Tom had asked if she'd ever consider going out with Len, she'd said, quote, No, certainly not. I would know what to expect if I did. Tom had first said this to Detective Sergeant Alford on the Sunday night Dot had died at Newcastle Police Station. The detective had then had Tom say it in front of Len Roberts, also at the station undergoing questioning for the first time. Hearing the claim, Len had hotly denied it, saying, quote, I never asked Dot Everett to go out at any time. In court, Tom was asked why he hadn't seen his girlfriend home that night. He replied, I was particularly tired. I had been working overtime. Previously, it had been reported that Tom had said it was Dot's idea that he'd go home to bed while she went off alone, but he didn't now say this in court. Tom was asked why Dot had been so averse to using the safer Terrell Street entrance to the Broughton School. He said he didn't really know her reasons, she'd more or less kept them hidden from him. What Dot had told him was that she'd never liked working at the school and she intended to leave at Christmas. Tom agreed that Dot's mother had berated him at the morgue, saying, quote, You should have gone home with her. Tom had told Mrs. Everett that he'd been tired and that he now regretted his decision. As for dyeing his hair, Tom had done that three months ago, he said, simply because he was a young man going prematurely grey, and it had actually been his parents' idea. There was nothing sinister about it. 
For Len Roberts, solicitor Mr Wheeler asked Tom if sometimes when he took Dot back to the school at night, they'd sat on the grass together. Tom said, never. Mr Wheeler asked, quote, When you took her home and found the front gate closed about three weeks before her death, what happened? Tom replied, she tried to push the gate open but could not do so. She had no key for the lock. Mr Wheeler, would you be surprised to know there was never any lock on the gate? Tom, I would be surprised. Mr Wheeler pressed, did you go into the grounds that night when you found the back gate open? Tom replied, yes, I walked a few yards in and stood not very far from the gate. She did not want to stop there and seemed rather agitated about it, so we went around to the front. This recent experience, which he'd shared in, made Tom's initial suggestion that Dot, finding herself locked out, had gone to Taree, even harder to understand. It also made one of Truth Newspaper's theories seem less far-fetched, and that had been that Dot was more afraid of using the well-lit Terrell Street back gate than she'd been of risking another attack on the Church Street side. Mr Wheeler opened a new line of inquiry when he asked Tom whether Dot had ever mentioned experiencing trouble with a man in Sydney. Tom said yes. The chap was referred to by her as the Yank. Dot had said that the Yank had pestered her sister Elsie when she'd worked at Chatswood. After Elsie had resigned and gone back to Newcastle, Dot had filled the role and started working for the same lady. Then the Yank had started hassling her. He wanted to know where Elsie was. Dot wouldn't tell him. Tom said that Dot had resigned and come back to Newcastle, but it hadn't been because of the Yank. It had been because she didn't get on with her boss. Mr Wheeler wanted to know had the Yank followed Dot to Newcastle, hoping she'd lead him to Elsie. Tom told the court, quote, She was not sure, but she thought she saw him in Newcastle on one or two occasions. Mr. Wheeler finished by drawing attention to a remark that Tom had made in the wake of his girlfriend's murder. He asked, Did you ever say to anybody that you felt that something was going to happen that night? Tom replied, No. I may have said that when I went to bed, a premonition occurred to me that something might happen to the girl. There was nothing sinister in this comment, beyond perhaps it being an acknowledgement that on that Saturday night, he'd had some sort of awareness that Dot was in danger going home alone, particularly as she'd told him she'd recently been attacked. Tom Donegan had not murdered his girlfriend, but that didn't mean he didn't feel guilt. He knew, everyone knew, if he'd seen her home, she'd still be alive. Next in the witness box was the deceased sister, Elsie Everett. Last time she'd seen Dot, it had been on the afternoon of Sunday the 21st of November, six days before she died. They'd been with their other sister Bessie. It had been an unremarkable visit and they just chatted about family matters. But Elsie had much more to say about her second last visit with Dot. That had been at Broughton, two days earlier, Friday the 19th of November. Dot had taken Elsie into the school's kitchen. A man was eating at the table. Len, Dot said, this is my sister Elsie. Elsie told the court Dot had mentioned him previously. As the trio chatted in the kitchen, Elsie mentioned where she worked at Merriweather as a domestic servant. Len commented he knew a girl employed there whose nickname was Bear. When Len had finished eating and left the kitchen, Elsie remarked of his confident manner, who does he think he is? Dot had laughed and said, 
He has been wanting to take me out two or three times, but I know too much about him to want to go out with him. It was widely reported that Elsie told the court she'd replied to Dot, he was star border at one place. But that didn't really make sense if Elsie had only just met Len. How did she know this? Truth's version of her testimony made more sense. In their report, Elsie had said, he's the star border. In all the accounts, Dot had shot back, he's a good many people's star border. The term star border was then well-known slang and it had numerous meanings, ranging from innocuous to obnoxious. In its mildest form, star border meant what it said, a house resident who was favoured. But it could also mean a boarder who had a husband's privileges with the landlady. At its most extreme, it denoted a man who was a bludger, a pimp, someone who lived off the wages of prostitutes. What Elsie, in her testimony, seemed to be implying was that Dot knew Len was a pants man, either from what she'd seen or from what she'd been told. Elsie said in court that she'd wanted to know the gossip that Dot had on Len, quote, but she wouldn't tell me. For the record, Elsie said that Dot did not smoke cigarettes, so the half-smoked one found in the grounds wouldn't have been hers. Elsie also testified that the man known as The Yank had not molested her or Dot in Sydney. His real name was Hank James McCarthy. He'd been Elsie's pen pal for a while. Then they'd met and seen each other in Sydney, but she'd said to him she did not want to be in contact with him anymore. He hadn't taken no for an answer and had pressed the matter. After Elsie left her Chatswood job and went to Newcastle, Dot had taken over the role and the Yank had tried to get information out of her. Elsie said in court she had not seen the Yank in Newcastle, but she agreed Dot thought she'd spotted him, though he hadn't spied her. So what had police done to investigate the Yank? The answer to that wouldn't be forthcoming until detectives testified. Next in the witness box was Dr. Alec Andrew Allen, Bachelor of Dentistry and Honorary Sydney University Demonstrator in Dental Histology, which focuses on the development and growth of teeth. Given his role in proceedings, Dr. Allen's background deserves a little elucidation. According to records at ancestry.com.au, he was born in 1894 in Bemboka, on the far south coast of New South Wales. Alec had been a teacher before enlisting in August 1916 to fight in the Great War. His record at the National Archives of Australia shows he arrived in France in March 1917. By the end of October, though, he was in a field hospital, suffering mania. Alec was sent for care in London, but, still stricken, was returned to Australia and discharged medically unfit at the end of April 1918. Mania has many causes. Extreme stress and protracted sleeplessness, which were endemic among diggers on the Western Front, can trigger episodes. Alec may have suffered from what we now know as bipolar disorder and endured other bouts of mania and depression, but if that was the case, they're not referred to in the available record. What is recorded is that soon after repatriation, Alec had recovered sufficiently to return to teaching at a public school in Roselle. He resigned in April 1919 and went on to study dentistry at Sydney University. In 1922, Alec got married, and the following year, he and his wife had a daughter. He was practicing as a dentist by the mid-1920s, and for the next decade, was a professional in good standing. What's now known as bite analysis wasn't even in its infancy in 1937-1938, 
But as far as it went, Dr. Allen was an expert when it came to teeth. Even so, he'd only be able to work from photographs of the bite marks because he'd only begun assisting the police after Dot had been buried. Dr. Allen told the court he'd closely examined the marks in one of these photos of Dot. He said he'd spent four weeks using, quote, scientific process to work out the problem of how many teeth Dot's murderer had. In the second instalment, we heard that on the 8th of December, it was reported detectives were consulting with a dentist about bite marks. Yet the very next day, that announced that was a dead end because no teeth impressions had been left. But now Dr. Allen told the court he'd concluded the marks on Dot had been caused by what he called a suction bite. The person who did the biting had only two natural teeth, a canine and a bicuspid in the upper left side of the mouth and these had left distinct impressions. Sergeant Magne asked, Would you say that the lower teeth were absent when that took place? Dr. Allen, Yes, I consider that was so. Here, Mr. Wheeler asked whether the police had influenced Dr. Allen in his conclusions. Quote, Were you told something about a man who had an artificial set of teeth on the top and no teeth in the lower gums? The witness swore he had not been told this and had not been primed by the police. The evidence he was giving was based on his own objective observations. Mr. Wheeler pressed, Do you know anyone implicated who fits that description? Dr. Allen replied, Not that I know of. Mr. Wheeler asked about other factors he'd taken into account to reach his suction bite conclusion. The dentist said he considered the, quote, psychology of the case. Under questioning, Dr. Allen told the court he'd made a private study of criminology over the past two or three years. Psychology was outside of Dr. Allen's area of professional expertise, and it wasn't why he'd been called as a witness. Nevertheless, he clearly felt qualified to extemporise on the subject because of his study of criminology. Perhaps his own experiences with mental illness also intensified his interest in the subject and made him believe he had great insight into psychological aberrations. Mr. Wheeler asked, What do you know about the psychology of the case? What do you know about the subject in this case? Dr. Allen replied, I was told there had been attempted rape and that was all that concerned me. At the time, it influenced me in considering the teeth marks. Dr. Allen's testimony was thus that the police had told him there'd been an attempted rape because that would help him decide what sort of teeth had made the bites. But according to Dr. Allen, the police had at no stage over the month he'd been using his scientific process mentioned that they'd interviewed a man of interest who wore upper dentures and who did not wear a matching lower set. Dr. Allen said he had not been shown an apple with teeth impressions in it nor a sergeant of police who'd been subjected to a bite test. Mr. Wheeler wanted to know how many times Dr. Allen had been an expert witness in criminal cases. The dentist replied, This is the first occasion. Mr. Wheeler pressed, No doubt you've assisted the police on a good many occasions. The dentist answered, I do not know about assistance. Given this was Dr. Allen's first case, Mr. Wheeler wondered how he'd become involved. He replied, I volunteered. Mr. Wheeler, what did you do about it? Dr. Allen, I went to Sydney and told them I thought I could help. Mr. Wheeler, you are not asked? No. So it hadn't actually been the police's initiative to seek a dental opinion, but they'd gotten one anyway. Mr. Wheeler mused, 
It is a pity you weren't on this case earlier. If you could have seen the body, it would have helped. Dr. Allen agreed. Yes, it is a pity. Unfairly, Mr. Wheeler added, and you let it go for four days before inquiring. Dr. Allen replied, I did not know anything of the suction bites until about then. Mr. Wheeler asked, what is a suction bite? Dr. Allen replied, it is primarily suction, but to satisfy an apparent trend in a person's mind, biting gives more satisfaction to the perpetrator. This armchair forensic psychology was beyond his professional expertise. But the Crown had meant Dr. Allen's testimony to establish Len as a monster who'd sucked at Dorothy and then bitten her with his two teeth to gratify his perverse desires. But Dr. Wheeler had gently established Dr. Allen's lack of experience as an expert witness and that he was something of a crime enthusiast. Further, he'd planted the seed that police had influenced Dr. Allen's testimony. Yet, it had seemed that Mr. Wheeler was also keeping his powder dry, holding off on following up on another deficiency in the police's investigation. All in all, it had been a dramatic first day of the inquest. Australia now had a prime suspect in the murder of Dorothy May Everett. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wednesday the 5th of January, the second day of the inquest, was to see a dark and mysterious portrait emerge of Dorothy May Everett. While only the lower gallery of the coroner's court had been open to the public on the first day, interest was so intense, now the upper gallery was made available to satisfy demand. When the doors opened, as the Newcastle Sun reported, quote, 21 women and fashionably dressed girls rushed up the stairs to secure seats. There were 15 more downstairs, and as the paper noted of these true crime fans, quote, some of the women had small children with them and there was also a small child giving evidence. Francis Walker, nine-year-old newspaper boy, was too short to see over the witness box, so he had to stand outside it. In spite of his age, Francis spoke with quiet assurance about doing his paper round on the morning of Sunday the 28th of November, entering Broughton School, seeing Dot's accessories on the grass, and going over to the gardener who was sweeping with a broom. Francis recalled, quote, I told him about the bangle and things, I did not hear him say anything. He walked down and had a look at them. I delivered a paper, and when I came back past the tennis court, I saw the gardener talking to some women near the school. Afterwards, Francis saw Len back down the grounds near the wall. On the path, the boy stood on his tiptoes to see better. Len was standing over the body, now covered in what the boy thought was a yellow dress. In his testimony, Francis said that he hadn't seen Len bend down or touch the body at any point. Jean Lamb, who'd been a housemaid at Broughton, told the court she'd seen Dot at 6.45 that Saturday night. Jean had also gone out, but used the back gate to leave and then to return at quarter past 12. She'd chatted to her roommate, Eileen Crockett, also just in after a night out until 12.50. They'd gone to sleep 
and Jean had heard no screams during the night. Jean told of waking up, hearing from Mrs. Geary that Dot was missing and passing this news to Mrs. Futrell. From the upstairs window, Jean had seen the pale shape on the lawn and mentioned it to Mrs. Geary, who said it couldn't be Dot. Jean had then been called by Mrs. Futrell when she saw the same thing. Mrs. Futrell, Jean said, had asked, What's that down there? Jean had replied, I had the same sort of feeling this morning. It's nothing, is it? Mrs. Futrell had said, Where's Len? The woman had run downstairs. Len was on his way up to the house. According to Jean, Mrs. Futrell had said, What is that down there? Len had replied, It's Dot. The paperboy has just found her bag and gloves. Jean said Mrs. Futrell had asked Len, quote, whether he had looked. He said no, so he'd gone back to check. When he returned, Len said, It is Dot. She's dead. Give me a sheet. What Len had seen from where and when, what he'd done and when, what he'd said and when, what he'd known and when, these were all now crucial. When Len had first seen the body from a few yards away, if he hadn't removed the corsets covering the face, then how had he known it was Dot? Of course, the simple answer was he hadn't known for sure, but had assumed because he knew she was missing. Mr Wheeler said to Jean that Len had initially said, It's a body. It must be Dot. He put it to her that Mrs Futrell had then replied, Go down and make sure. Jean Lamb said she didn't remember it that way. Mr Wheeler set out to show that it was quite logical to suppose it was Dot when he asked Jean about the bad sensation she'd had when she first saw the pale shape by the wall from the upstairs window. She told him, quote, It was a queer feeling that went through me, a feeling of horror. I thought it might be a body. Jean said she thought, felt, it might be Dot. Even so, she hadn't done anything for more than an hour, seemingly in denial, too afraid to find out for sure. Mr Wheeler asked about Dot's demeanour. Jean said, she always seemed to be a bit depressed. Jean said she knew that Dot was seeing Tom. While Dot had raised their different religions, she was Anglican, he was Catholic, as an issue in any marriage plans, Jean said she'd seemed fond of Tom and had not been depressed about their relationship. Nevertheless, Dot's moods had worsened during her time at Broughton. Jean had tried to talk to her, saying, You were worrying about something. Dot had told her, I keep all my troubles to myself. Jean was asked if Dot's depression was why she'd thought it might be her lying dead near the wall. The intimation being that at first, seeing the body from a distance, Jean might have thought that Dot had committed suicide. But Jean said no. She just had a feeling, a bad feeling, that it was Dot. Jean said that Dot had never said anything to her about being accosted or being molested by a stranger or hassled by the Yank or anyone else. Jean told the court that she almost always used the back gate to leave and enter the school. When she had used the front gate, she said she'd never had any trouble in opening it. Jean said she'd warned Dot against using the dark Church Street entrance. Quote, She told me she was going to use the back gate. One night, she was about to go in that way, but saw myself and a friend coming down the street, and she went to the front gate. Maybe this was just Dot not wanting to make small talk, answer questions about her night, or endure an awkward introduction to her boyfriend. That would have made some sense if she didn't like Broughton and wanted to resign. Next, 
Jean told the court that before the alarm had been raised that Sunday, she'd been in the kitchen having tea with Len and Mrs. Geary. Len, she said, had been acting normally. And the same went later, after Dot was discovered, and the trio gathered for a breakfast that they didn't eat because they were all in shock. Mr. Wheeler asked Jean if Len had ever done anything she could take exception to, anything vulgar or immoral. She said no. He'd always been well-behaved and he'd never taken any liberties with her or other girls working at the school. Elsie Geary, Broughton's cook and Dot's roommate, described the deceased going out to meet Tom that Saturday night. Quote, She appeared to be in her usual spirits. She had a funny sort of disposition. She was never cheerful. She said she did not think she would like the program of pictures they were going to see and that if she could persuade Tom, they might come back to town to the Royal. This, of course, was another what if. If Dot had been able to convince Tom to go to the Royal to see Dangerously Yours and Alcatraz Island starring Mary Maguire, she might have arrived back to Broughton School a few minutes earlier. The difference, perhaps, between life and death. Mrs. Geary told the court about the maid Eileen Crockett coming in singing at 10 past 12 and telling her to pipe down because she was going to wake everybody up. Mrs. Geary had gone back to sleep, woken at 2, seen that Dot wasn't in the room, and then drifted off again. At 5.30, she'd awoken for work. Dot still hadn't come home. Mrs. Geary hadn't heard any screams in the night. When she arose, she went to chat to Eileen, sending the girl on her way for her day off. While they were talking, Len went past the open door, coming from his own quarters. Shortly after, at 6.30, she, Len and Jean had a cup of tea. They'd reconvened in the kitchen after Dot's body had been found. Mrs. Geary testified that they hadn't talked too much about the tragedy, but Len had said that once he lifted the thing, that was, the corsets, off the face, he'd known it was Dot. Sergeant Magnay asked Mrs. Geary about Len's demeanour in the kitchen. Quote, Did Roberts appear upset? Mrs. Geary, Yes, he appeared upset. We were all upset. I cooked eggs for breakfast, but all we had was a cup of tea. Mrs. Geary said that Dot had kept very late hours, sometimes coming in at 2.30 and once at 2.40. And Dot had been depressive. Quote, One night she sat on the end of the bed with her head in her hands for three quarters of an hour. Mrs. Geary had said, Dot, what is up with you? She'd responded, Nothing. I'm only thinking. Mrs. Geary had told her, There is something up with you, Dot. Get into bed. The girl had responded, You go to sleep. I'm all right. Then Dot had gone to the kitchen for a drink, but she'd been away a long time. When she came back, she sat on the bed again and didn't say where she'd been. Mrs. Geary also testified, I have heard her crying at night. I would ask her what was up. She would say it was toothache. She never discussed her affairs with me in any way. Given Mrs. Geary had just said that Dot never discussed things, the school's cook seemed to know an awful lot about the girl. Quote, She was always a quiet and morbid sort. She told me she was frightened of someone in Taree. She said that her people had to take her to and from work. Dot hadn't mentioned any name. Mrs. Geary had another sinister-sounding recollection. Shortly after Dot had started working at the school, there'd been a phone call and Reverend Futrell had answered. The caller on the other end had asked for a Miss Everett. 
The headmaster, not realising that was Dot's surname, said no one by that name worked at Broughton School, and he hung up. Later on, when Mrs Geary was collecting her pay from the Reverend, he'd seen Dot's surname on his list and told her about the call. Mrs Geary mentioned it to Dot. Now she recounted in court, quote, I told Dot and she could not say who it was. She asked all her friends if they had called. There was a person whom she did not wish to know that she worked there. She was glad that Mr Futrell had said that no Miss Everett worked at the school. Mrs Geary said that Dot had told her about the Yank without naming him, saying he'd hassled her about Elsie in Sydney and after she left she thought she'd spotted him in Newcastle but felt he hadn't seen her. Mrs Geary also testified that Dot seemed to avoid people. Quote, One night Dot was returning by the front gate. Mrs Futrell was having a party and the guests were just leaving. She went around the corner and began to enter through Bishop's Court. This was the property of the Anglican prelate next door. Mrs Geary continued, quote, She became lost in the grounds and she said that after wandering about for a long time, she had just decided to sit down and wait for morning when she found a gate. Mr Wheeler asked if Dot had ever explained why she came home so late. Mrs Geary replied, She told me once that she had to go to Gloucester on business with her uncle. He had decided to leave at nine o'clock. I told her that it was not possible to go to Gloucester and return in that time. When she was confronted with her lie, Mrs Geary said, quote, She just held her head down. If Mrs Geary was to be believed, Dot had tried to deceive her about who she was with and what she was doing. Mrs Geary had another example for the court. Quote, on another occasion, she returned early on Sunday morning. I asked where she had been, and she replied that when she and Tom returned from the pictures, they stood outside the gate. Her uncle arrived in a car and told her that her aunt was ill, and she went with Tom and her uncle. It seemed an oversight that the coroner, Mr Chiplin, didn't recall to the witness box Dot's uncle John and her boyfriend Tom to ask them about these occasions. Generally speaking, Mrs Geary said, when Dot came home late at night, she'd try to enter the house stealthily, taking off her shoes and carrying them beneath an arm. Again, this made sense if Dot had been trying to avoid conversations she didn't really want to have. Mrs Geary said that Dot had never complained about being accosted or molested on the way home by a stranger. Asked about Len Roberts, Mrs Geary said, quote, He was always a thorough gentleman. On the back of Mrs Geary's testimony, Elsie Everett was recalled to answer further questions. She denied that her sister had been afraid of anyone in Taree and that she'd needed to be escorted to and from work. Elsie said that Dot had not been depressive. The only time she'd been unhappy, she said, was when Mrs Futrell was mean to her. Had Dot ever mentioned being accosted or molested? Elsie said, yes. She said she'd been chased up the steps. That was about a week before she was killed. Elsie said it had not been inside the school. The steps Dot had been talking about were the zigzag steps in the park leading up to Church Street. The maid, Eileen Crockett, who hadn't been interviewed by Sydney CIB's Detective Inspector Stanley McCarthy, who was leading the investigation until after the focus had turned to Len Roberts in the second week of December, now testified that she had sometimes seen Dot standing inside the front gate with Tom between midnight and half past twelve, but not on the evening in question. 
Eileen said she'd come home and use the front gate at 10 past 12. She hadn't noticed anyone in the grounds. She hadn't seen anything on the grass near the path and she had not heard screams overnight. Early on Sunday morning, when Eileen had hurried off to make the most of her day off, she'd spied a handkerchief near the path but had thought nothing much of it. Eileen swore she had not seen the body near the brick wall on her way down the grounds to the gate that led out onto Church Street. The inquest's most sensational line of inquiry began with the next witness. Betty Robinson had been a maid at Broughton from early 1937 and she'd worked with her friend Ethel Herbert. Their employment had ended early last October when they'd both done a runner on the same day. For the Crown, Sergeant Magnay asked Betty about the relationship between Len and Ethel. Betty said they were friendly and that they'd gone to a dance. But one day she'd found Ethel crying and had asked her what had happened. Quote, She said Len had hit her with a rolled newspaper. I said, why did he do that? She replied, because I would not go out with him. Despite this, on the night they were about to abscond, Betty and Ethel took their suitcases to Len's room. The plan was to store them there while they went to a dance. Then they'd come back, get their stuff and take off. But Ethel decided to ditch the dance. She remained with Len in his bedroom and only Betty went out. Some three hours later, Betty came back to the school. She collected her friend from Len's room and she and Ethel slipped into the night with their suitcases. Sergeant Magnay asked Betty about Ethel. Had she been to that room on previous occasions? Betty, not that I know of. Ethel had had a boyfriend, Betty said, and when Len had asked her out to the pictures, Ethel hadn't known what to do. Len had wanted her to give up her boyfriend, but Ethel had refused. Sergeant Magnay asked, Did you ever hear him suggest that they should go out together? Betty responded, I heard him ask one night whether she would like to go to the pictures. She replied that she did not think so. Sergeant Magnay wanted to know if Betty had ever said to anyone that Ethel had actually been a frequent visitor to Len's room. Betty denied saying that. Mr Wheeler asked Betty if Ethel had ever complained about Len. Betty said no. Though it seemed at odds with the newspaper incident, her friend, quote, always referred to him as a perfect gentleman. Betty said Len had never asked her out, nor had he been offensive or objectionable. Mr Wheeler asked if Betty had ever been afraid coming into the school late at night. She said yes, on several occasions she had. Quote, One night when I was entering the school from the front, I saw somebody smoking a cigarette on the left-hand side. I could not see if it was a man or a woman. I ran up, but could not fit the key in the door. Ethel was still up, and I told her what I'd seen. Betty went on. Several times we heard sounds like somebody walking over stones at the back of our room and towards the bedroom. We complained to the few trolls, but they told us it was probably cattle. It was not cattle, because we had a good look and saw none. Betty said that while sitting on a seat on the street opposite the school late at night, she'd on several occasions seen strange couples walking out from the grounds. Once, she'd seen an elderly man stroll out. Detective Sergeant Archibald Patterson of Newcastle testified he'd interviewed Len Roberts on the Sunday night of Dot's murder. He testified as to what Len had told him about getting to the school at 12.50 and not seeing anything. In the morning, after the paper boy alerted him, Len said, quote, 
I went down the path and saw the body. The face was covered with some clothing. I had a look and either walked or ran back to the school. The sergeant testified Len told him that Mrs. Futrell and Jean had asked, What's down there? He said he'd said, It must be Dot. Mrs. Futrell had told him, Go down and have a look. The sergeant testified Len had said, quote, I went down and had another look at the body. I came back and said to Mrs. Futrell, It's Dot all right. She's naked. Give me a sheet to cover the body. I covered the body and remained there till the police and doctor arrived. Len hadn't said anything about lifting up the corset at any time. So how had he known it was Dot? Now it was time for Len Roberts to enter the witness box. If this was a trial, if he'd been arrested and charged with Dot's murder, he wouldn't have had to take the stand unless he wanted to. Coroner Mr. Chiplin told Len, quote, You need not answer any question that tends to incriminate you. But Leonard William Roberts, who'd already agreed to three lengthy police interviews, wanted to answer every question put to him. He wanted the coroner and the public to know he had nothing to hide. Len knew what the court was about to hear would be shocking. It had outraged decency. But he had to say it, and they had to hear it. Telling his own story in his own words might be the only way to stop a noose being fitted for his neck. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part three of the five-part Forgotten Australian miniseries, The Vampire Murder. Parts 4 and 5 will be released soon on regular podcast platforms. But you can hear Parts 4 and 5 now by becoming a supporter. The Patreon link is in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.